Well, it's no secret that there is a, a lot of disagreement, a lot of um, disharmony in the church. Uh, we could just say, particularly within the American church in 2022, and thinking back over the last few years in particular, there, that's not to say that it's disharmony and divis- divisiveness is not an issue in, in other parts of the world and has been at other times, but there is a lot of squabbling between and within denominations. There, it, It's happening between churches. It's happening between Christians within churches and local congregations. It's happening online between Christians and between pastors. There's some of the most uh, obvious ones. Uh, it's happening within families. There's a lot of estrangement that's gone on and among believers within families over the over the past few years in particular a lot of people recognize this and they see this is just epidemic right now um, there have been many books many articles many podcasts many sermons even songs kind of highlighting this over the last year or two in particular this problem of divisiveness in the evangelical church there's, if you subscribe to World Magazine, they had this fall a three-part series by Sophia Lee that it was on divisions within American evangelicalism. And, and just highlighting, the article just kind of followed these two individuals that, were, that, that share common uh, conservative theological convictions and core convictions and, 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 and uh, common doctrine, both both conservative evangelicals, and yet they live in very different places and are, 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 are seeing the world through very different lenses and, and just the, the, the challenges of that. So some, some writers, some speakers, as they've, as they've tried to kind of assess what's going on in, the, in, in this way, they, some want to pin it on COVID, and that's, that's the problem. That's what this is caused by. Others blame it on social, political unrest and the climate of, of our day. Others find fault with the media. Um, others point the finger at social media and all of the algorithms that, uh, that, that just set this up. Well, there's probably some truth in all of that, isn't there? I mean, there, those are contributing factors for sure, but none of those tell the whole story. None of those tell the real story. Um, at the, at the, and, and into the pandemic... If that when when and if that happens, different political leaders and policies in place, more balanced news sources, better online algorithms, all of those would be wonderful. But even taken together, they're not going to fix what's broken. Jesus prayed in John chapter 17 for us. He prayed for all of those who would come to believe the gospel message that was proclaimed by the apostles. And he prayed that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. So some, after just kind of thinking about and seeing all of the bickering and the backbiting and the division and the conflict among Christians, they've, some have called Jesus' petition there in John 17 the unanswered prayer of Jesus. Is that the case? Is it the unanswered prayer of Christ. Well, our passage this morning will help answer that question. If you're not there already, turn to Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. Ephesians chapter 4. And we're going to be we're going to be looking at really three verses, verses 4 to 6, but I want to read verses 1 to 7. 
Ephesians 4, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Let me pray again. Lord, would you help us now as we consider these verses here that are before us, Lord. We pray for the aid of your Holy Spirit to work these truths deep within our, our, our souls this morning, Lord, and that they would manifest themselves in the way, in our attitudes towards one another, in the way we see the church, in the way we relate to one another in the church. We beg you now in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we're, we're beginning just a, a short series um, looking at Ephesians 4 and remembering again, just who we are as a church. We often will take some weeks in the first part of the year and just consider, again, uh, just some basic reminders from Scripture about uh, what the church is, what we're to be about as a church, and, and, and just some basic, again, reminders from Scripture. And so Ephesians 4, it's not, obviously, it's not going to tell us everything we need to know about who we are as the church, but it is going to make one truth very clear, and particularly in these opening verses of chapter 4, it's this, it's that we we are one. We're one. And so there, there, are, there are appeals to pursue unity in this chapter. We read some of those in the first three verses. But, but what I want you to see this morning in particular is that those, those appeals, those exhortations are grounded in our identity. In our identity. In the reality that we are present tense one. Now, it may not appear that way, it may not always look that way, but this is, and I'll, I'll show you this. But in other words, unity, you know, unity in the church, it's not just some achievement that we, we must strive to create this unity in the body of Christ. No, it is a gracious gift that we have been given, and we need to then earnestly lay hold of that gift that we've already been freely given by the Lord. And so today, in the next two Sundays, we're gonna, we're gonna focus on this God-given, this grace-provided oneness in the church. And so today, we are, we're gonna see, particularly in verses four to six, that we are, we are one because the triune God has made us one. Next week, we're gonna consider that we are one and Christ gives us gifts then to maintain this harmony. And then the following week, we'll, we'll see that we are one and therefore we should seek functional unity as our goal because we are one. And so that's what we're, that's the track we're going to run on for the next three weeks. But we, we are one. And now I want you to understand that disagreements, the stuff that we were talking about in just a moment ago and that we see all around us in the church and that many of us are experiencing right now within families, within, with, with other believers, and we see it all around us, Lord. Those things are not unique to our day and time. They're not. And so Paul, as he's writing Ephesians 4 here, he's not writing to some 
kind of in some idyllic situation. These aren't just kind of theological abstractions where it's just, you know, talking about these ideas that don't really have any practical relevance in the Ephesian church. No. Like this is, this is ground level stuff for him as he writes to Ephesus. The, he's talking to this congregation about oneness because these Jewish Christians and these Gentile Christians, and primarily in this very little congregation, they, they are very, very, very different. And they have very real disagreements among one another. This is what they're experiencing. They have very, very different religious backgrounds. They have very, very different cultural and ethnic backgrounds. And here they've been, by God's providence, plopped in this little little small cluster of house churches, you know, 40, 50 people probably. So it's not like they can hide in this massive congregation and have their little subgroups. Here they are, thrown together in this little fellowship. And so Paul understands that this kind of harmony that we're to pursue in the church, it's, 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 it's a difficult thing. And so he brings this, this big theology to bear on the matter here. And that's what we're going to focus on, particularly this morning. And so I'm basically going to give you my sermon conclusion first, because I want to make sure we get there. And then, uh, so I'm going to show you sort of the conclusions that I've, I think we can come to based on the verses that we'll consider. And then we're going to walk through these verses and backfill and show you how we got there. And so Paul, this is what I want you to see, though, as we take this passage in a whole, particularly verses four to six. Paul doesn't tell them what you need to do is you need to look down deep within your hearts and, and, and find this love with inside of you so that you can get along with one another. It's not what he does. He points them instead. He points them outside of themselves. It's not within you. It's, it's outside of you. And so he grounds his, his appeal, his real appeal to pursue unity, pursue peace with one another, lay hold of this. Together, he grounds this in these, in these objective realities. These, these fixed truths that are to have this controlling influence on the way that they live uh, with one another in love. And so it's, he, he grounds his appeals on these fixed realities. Who God is, what God has done, who God has made us to be in the church. That's... That's the focus. And so that's how he begins this section in the letter. So you see it in verse 1. We'll, we'll come back to this in a couple weeks and focus on verses 1 to 3. But that's how he begins this section. Verse 1, I, therefore, that's a big word. And if you know anything about Ephesians, you know this is a transition within the letter. So he says, I, therefore, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And we'll come back to that at the end. But that therefore... He's saying, in light of everything I've said up to this point in chapters 1 to 3, we talked a little bit about this last week, but Paul, Paul has been expounding this glorious gospel message, all, all of the wealth that we have in Jesus Christ, all that God has done for us in Christ, who He is, who He's made us to be in Christ. He's been expounding that. And then verses, or excuse me, in chapters 4 to 6, he's, he's going to show the implications of the, these realities in our life together. Uh, particular life together as a church. And so he starts to, to give some exhortations in light of these realities. These, so, so he's giving some imperatives here that are, that are with that therefore. They're grounded in those indicatives of chapter one to third, or chapters one to three. 
So, but it's, so he starts to do that in verse, verse one. And so he's pleading with them. I urge you, this, this, this intensity, this seriousness about this. And he wants them to walk in a manner worthy of their calling and to do it with humility and gentleness and patience, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So he starts down that road and it's almost like he gets to verse four and he says, now just in case you missed all that I said before in chapters one to three, let me, let me summarize it again for you. And that's what he does in verses 4 to 6, and that's where our focus will be. So he goes back to the indicatives in verses 4 to 6. And so what I want you to see this morning, and I hope that will be evident as we walk through these verses, is there's this distinct gospel logic to the text. That the, the way we're to walk, the way we're to live with one another, it is rooted in these realities, listen, that we contributed absolutely nothing to. We... We are beneficiaries of them. We're caught up in these realities, but we haven't caused them. We haven't created them. We haven't contributed to them. This is God's work, His doing in us. So our union with one another in the church, the basis of our oneness, the, the, the grounds for our harmony and for us being able to get along in spite of our differences, that rest ultimately not in some internal abilities within us it rests ultimately on who God is and what he's given us and who he's made us in Christ that's that's the conclusion brothers and sisters and so our focus this morning is going to be on verses 4 to 6 those indicatives what's true of us because God has given it to us and now in verse 3 again we're exhorted to you notice to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bonds of peace we're to preserve we're we're, we're to keep holding on to, we're to take hold of the, the unity that the Holy Spirit has given us that, that by living at peace with one another in the church. That's what he's talking about. Again, this is the gospel logic of the text. We're to live, we're to live out who we already are. I mean, that's a simpler way to say. We're to live out who we already are. So Paul's not saying... But you again, he's not saying again, you need, you need to realize this, this sort of latent potential in you for unity. He's not saying that. He's not saying if you'll do as good as you can and work as hard as you can, God will eventually give you this elusive unity. And he's not saying, he's not even saying, you know, one day in the future, in heaven, you're gonna, you're, you'll all have unity together, so strive to have that kind of unity now that you're going to know then. That's not really the argument that he's making. Notice what he's saying. Notice the tense of this, of these verses. He's saying, God has already, He has already made you one. Spiritually, but really one in Christ. He's already given you this indissoluble, this, this inviolable oneness in Christ with one another and with one another. Now, and then he's going to say, now live that out. Live out of that. God has done this work of grace in you to make you one in Jesus. Now be who you already are. I know that may sound sort of, okay, well, I, don't, I don't understand how that works. Well, just be patient and we'll... We'll, we'll un develop that. But Christian, this is what I want to see, and this is the conclusion that I'm giving you at the beginning. Christian unity is the work of God. It is the work of God. It's not simply a product of human effort. Does, does that mean that we're not actually involved, that we don't have to, we can just sit back and say, well, 
you know, I'm just going to be passive. I'm just going to watch and see how this unfolds. I don't actually have to move towards my brother in love and pers- no, not at all. That's not the case at all. We are, but we are energized and driven to work for peace and to strive for peace and to lay hold of this harmony with one another because of the gift of oneness that we've already received by grace in Christ. That's a, that's a big difference. That gospel logic is absolutely essential for us to understand what the argument that Paul's making here and the appeal that he's making here to these believers. So that's my sermon conclusion. Now I want to show you how I got there. And so in verses 4 to 6, Paul's showing us the grounds. He's showing us the source of, of Christian unity. You know, the church may not be organizationally one. It may not be visibly one, but, but it is spiritually one. And that is a real unity that we already have now. And so these verses, in verses 4 to 6, it lists seven ways that Christians are one. You notice this repeated word, one. Seven times in this in these verses. And so we're going to see that this sevenfold basis of Christian unity has this distinctly Trinitarian shape to it. It's connected organically to the Trinity. And so we're in verse four, we're going to see ways that the Holy Spirit makes us one. In verse five, ways that Jesus, second uh, second person of the Trinity, makes us one. And and then we're going to see in verse six ways the Father makes us one. And so the unity and the harmony of the church, it's securely rooted in the unity of the Godhead. John Stott says of this, he says, you can, you can no more multiply churches than you can multiply gods. Is there only one God and he has only one church? Is the unity of God inviolable? then so is the unity of the church. The unity of the church is as indestructible as the unity of God Himself. It is no more possible to split the church than it is possible to split the Godhead. That's a a strong statement. But he is trying to get the sense of of these verses that we're looking at together here in verses 4-6. to And I want you to just be faced with the strength of this statement. Now clearly, what we're talking about here is what we confess together in the Nicene Creed, what what theologians call the invisible church. This is the body of Christ that extends throughout all generations, throughout all geography. And so we're talking about all believers join in this body of Christ. Now, that truth has all kinds of implications for the visible church, for local congregations like ours. And that's how Paul's going to apply this truth for the Ephesian believers and to us. But, and, and, and so that's the connection he's making here. But that's what he's talking about here. So no matter what the appearances may suggest, like I began in the message, and as we see all of the fault lines, we all the conflict, we hear all of the bickering and squabbling, no matter what that seems to suggest, our unity with believers, all times, all places, all stripes, it is real. And it is objective, and it is spiritual, and it is true, and it is absolute, and cannot be broken. And it, just in the way that the persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one, so are we one. That's pretty strong. All right, so let's see. Let's walk through these ways, verses 4 to 6. First thing we see, we are one in God the Holy Spirit. We are one in God the Holy Spirit. Verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. So there are these 
three ways that we're one in the Holy Spirit. First, one body. We are, we are part of, of this one body that the Holy Spirit has brought into being. And so the New Testament, as you know, it gives us several kind of metaphors, word pictures, describing the church and giving us some conception of the church. And the most common one is, is the body. The church is a body. We see this in 1 Corinthians 12, really, worked out in Romans. And, and, and so the New Testament gives us these metaphors. And, and, and the metaphor of the body is just saying Christ is the head of the church. Then the church is the body of Christ. And so to be a Christian is to be under the head. Jesus is to be vitally connected to the other members of the body in fellowship with his body. Romans 12, verses 4 to 5, makes, says it this way. Paul says, For as in one body we have many members, we get that imagery, and, all, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. And so this body imagery just shows that, that we're connected personally and intimately and and, and uh, vitally, we need one another like parts of our bodies need one another. We're not just a pile of you know, random body parts, but we're connected. We're bound together, and we need all the parts working in sequence and working together to, to function, and that's the imagery here. So we are one Spirit-produced body. That's his point here. Holy Spirit creates the church. Holy Spirit brings together all these different individuals that are represented in this room, represented throughout uh, generations and throughout uh, around the world. He brings us together into this one body of Christ, one church. We're going to be studying Acts this spring, uh, and, and so we're going to see the birth of this church at Pentecost. And so this one body consists of all the redeemed saints of all the ages from, from the day of Pentecost until the rapture of the church. So these aren't, and this is his point, there aren't separate bodies. Separate bodies for different groups of believers. Different Christians based upon their preferences or, or their backgrounds or their cultural cultures or their hobbies and special, special interests or their political leanings or whatever else. The, the objective reality is that there, while there are many Christians and many local churches and many denominations in the world, there is only one body of Christ. And you are members of it if you've trusted in Jesus. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So again, if I could kind of go back to my conclusion and insert a comment here related to this point, notice what Paul is and what he's not saying. He's not starting by saying, now what you need to do is you need to work to be a body. You need to, you need to work to function. You need to strive to be a body together. It's not his appeal to them. But he says instead, you, you are one body. You are. Whether you like it or not, whether you realize it or not, whether you're experiencing life together in, in, in this way or not, you need to understand this about yourselves, brothers and sisters. You, there is one body. And God's Spirit has made you part of that body. That's, that's what we are. And then he'll say, now, in light of that, live that way. 
So the oneness we ought to pursue, the oneness we ought to experience in the local church and among other, with other believers, we ought to express the oneness we ought to express in our life together in this local church right here. It is based upon what the Holy Spirit has done to make us one body. And it's based upon the fact, next, that there is only one Spirit. And that's the second thing, the way the Spirit has made us one. one, There's one Spirit. We are one body because there is one Spirit that's given us being and has given us life together. Uh, Kent Hughes says, The Holy Spirit creates, feels, coordinates, orchestrates, and empowers the body of Christ. This one Spirit is working for all of us. This one Spirit lives within every person who trusts in the blood, who trusts in the righteousness of Jesus Christ for salvation. And that makes us one. 1 Corinthians 12, again, verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in, here's what he says, in one Spirit, We were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. So we're one body, and that's the work of one Spirit. And that gives us, therefore, one common hope. Thirdly, there's one body, one Spirit, just as you were called, verse 4, to the one hope that belongs to your call. That's kind of a sort of a parenthetical clause there at the end of verse 4. But he's talking about this future hope to which every Christian is called. We share this common hope. It's part of our calling. We share, we share the same future. We share the same destiny. We, we, we've been called, called to the same hope, this one hope. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, Paul, Paul prays for the the Ephesians, for their the eyes of their hearts to be enlightened so that they might know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? You go back earlier in Ephesians chapter 1. This is the Spirit has, has sealed us. We've been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, verse 13, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Spirit has provided this hope. He sealed us so it's just guarantee that hope that we all share. By the work of the Spirit, we all have this one hope. However conscious of this we are or not, however much the, our, our lives are gripped by this hope or they're not, this hope is really ours together. It's, it's our future. We all share this hope of the Lord's return. We all share the hope of of that Christ the King will return and will reign forever and ever. And every moment we live means we are one moment closer to that expectation becoming reality. Friends, listen. You may be worn out today. You may be just heavy burden. You may be sorrowful. There may be some, some, something in your life that's just, it's just made you weary. But the pain and the difficulty and the heartbreak of life in this fallen world. We all experience that at times. And this may be a, a real season where you're facing that right now. And you may be just crying out, come, Lord Jesus, come. Bring this to an end. Are you burdened with sin? Not just sin in general, but your sin. 
Are, are, are you pleading, Lord, bring the day when this is just gone? Where, 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 where there is in the past, where, where my sin is in the past and it's just no more. Uh, we sing that old uh, hymn, there's a fountain filled with blood and the last stanzas, dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Be saved to sin no more. Be saved to sin no more. Till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. And that is our hope. That's what we share. We share that with every believer. All who are in Christ have this one common hope, the coming righteous reign of our Lord. We may not all agree with the details of eschatology. We certainly don't. We, we may not all be living in light of Jesus' imminent return. We're, we're not all living like that, like we should be. But this is the objective reality. The Spirit has made us into one body, and He's called us to this one shared hope. That's truth. That's fixed. We didn't contribute anything to that reality, but it's reality. 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we'll see Him as He is. That is our common hope. That's the work of the Spirit. So we are one in God the Spirit. Second, we are one in God the Son. We see this, again, this Trinitarian shape. Verse 5 lists these three truths that make us one in Jesus Christ. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One Lord. There, the one Lord is Jesus. That's the very first Christian confession. We're talking about the Nicene Creed. We've, we walk through the Apostles' Creed. But this is the first Christian confession. It's what? Jesus is Lord. That's the earliest one that's recorded. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. It goes on in verse 12, for there is no distinction. Look, Look how he's even applying this reality. There's one Lord. There's no distinction between Jew or Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We have one Lord. That's just true. As Christians, we don't make Him Lord of our lives or of our church. We, he doesn't become Lord by our works or our effort. He is, there is one Lord and He is our Lord if we've trusted in Christ. We sing again, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. With His own blood, He bought her and for her life, He died. So one Lord, one faith. New Testament talks of faith in a couple different ways. Um, it speaks of faith as as. And subjectively and objectively. And so many instances in the New Testament is speaking of that subjective experience of faith. We know this in Acts chapter 16, verse 31. You know, Paul and Silas with the Philippian jailer. And they, their appeal is believe or have faith in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Salvation requires this personal faith in Jesus Christ. And again, those of us who are Believers, we've, we've believed, we trust in Jesus Christ. Our confidence is not in our works, it's not in our striving, it's not in our church attendance or our you know, family background or anything like that in our morality. Our confidence is in Christ alone. That's what it means to believe. But there are other places in the New Testament where faith refers to 
that objective truth. The, not to the subjective experience, but it's the content uh, of what we believe. Jude 3 is a well-known passage that, that we see this. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. There's, there's this body of truth, the faith, one faith that represents the biblical and historic Christian faith. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 will be there this spring. It calls this the apostles' teaching that we're to devote ourselves to. We have this one faith. We have this common creedal back, backbone for the body of Christ. For all who are in Christ, we believe the same thing. We trust the same Savior. We've, we, we trust in the same gospel for salvation. We believe in the same faith once for all delivered to the saints. We have a common belief, trust, and confidence. I mean, if you've had the opportunity, we've had opportunities to meet believers from all kinds of different cultures and backgrounds and, and, and nations that have come here. But if you've ever been able to travel into some remote part of the world, and, and you're you're there and and you and you're you're with somebody who's in a, from a very different country than yours and a very different culture, very different background. You seem to have nothing in common with this person. You don't look the same. You don't sound the same. You don't you know nothing about it is, is is similar. And you're there with them for just a few minutes. And as you're talking with them, it kind of dawns on you: this is a brother or sister in Christ by what they're saying. And it's like immediately you feel this bond with them. We believe the same thing. Our, our confidence is in the same person. It's in Christ. We, we confess the same thing. We have the same faith. This person believes the Bible. This, they believe the gospel. They, they're trusting in Jesus Christ. And immediately, this person from this radically different background from yours, they, they, feel, they feel like someone you know really well. You experience that. It's beautiful. Paul's saying, look, Ephesian believers, yes, Gentiles, Jewish, you seem to have nothing in common. Your backgrounds are radically different. You're struggling to figure out how this goes together, how you fit together, how you work through the practicalities of life together. Listen, you need to understand this. You share the same creed. There's one faith, the same object of faith. You've believed the same gospel. You embrace the same biblical truth. And it makes you one, no matter, no matter what, who you're with, no matter how different they are from you or you are from them, no matter where, from what part of the globe they are, if, if they share those things, they are your brother, sister. They are part of the same body. One faith. Now, okay, we say that. Are there points of doctrine that believers disagree on of course there are there are there are and and, not, and those are not unimportant matters and i'm not trying to minimize those distinctions and they're worth d discussing and and working through but those are those are family debates that we have within the within the church within this one body that's not what we're talking about here but the the most important doctrines that creedal background a backbone we share we, we agree on that. If we're Christians, we believe the same thing. We confess this one faith together. 
We recited it in the Nicene Creed, these, these truths that all believers at all times and all places would affirm. We share this, this one faith. One faith, one baptism, he says. Again, the New Testament speaks of baptism in a couple ways. It talks about spirit baptism. That is that supernatural, invisible, spiritual work where, where the Holy Spirit joins us to the body of Christ. You see this in Galatians chapter 3. I think this is what it's in reference to. Verse 27, For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. And there's also water baptism, which is that visible symbol of Spirit baptism, Matthew 28, 19, as part of the Great Commission, Jesus says, Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We'll see in Acts that these believers, these people are trusting in Christ and they're being baptized in the name of Christ. So baptism, it's not just some human tradition that we can, you know, accept or reject with our discretion. That's not it. No, the Lord Jesus commands His disciples to be marked by Baptism in the name of the triune God. And that public act identifies us with the, the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. And, and it also identifies us with other believers in Jesus Christ. So we all share this one baptism in the Spirit into the, of the Spirit into the body of Christ. And when we're baptized in water, we join the saints around the world and across generations. And we, I, we stand with them in this line of brothers and sisters in Christ who believed and been baptized. It's a beautiful thing. And so this is, this is the, again, Paul's making this case. He's laying this kind of theological, uh, just one round after another. He's saying we are... Here, we are one in God the Spirit, one body, one hope. We are one in God the Son, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And finally, we are one in God the Father. Verse 6, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We have one and the same Heavenly Father. And therefore, we are part of the same family. That's the point. It's not... One God for Jewish believers and one God for Gentile believers. No. It's one God and Father of us all. All who trust in Christ come to the one Father, the same Father through Him, through Jesus. We're all adopted into the same family. So we're now brothers and sisters of Christ, in Christ of our one Father. So the rest of verse 6 just unpacks what it means for this one God to be Father of us all. He's, he's the God the Father is over all. He has absolute sovereign authority over all things, over us and everything. He is through all. He isn't, he isn't aloof in his sovereignty. He, he, he's not some cosmic watchmaker like we talked about last week. That, that he's kind of created the world, wound it up, and then just set it free to just sort of run on its own resources and just keep going. No, he is, he is, he exercises this transcendent, uh, cosmic authority. And sovereignty, and yet he, he exercises very, very imminent personal providence in our lives. He's through all. One Father works through all. And He's in all. We are one because every Christian enjoys the presence of the life-giving King. 1 John chapter 4, verse 13. 
He says, by this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us His Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him. He in God. What a thought. God the Spirit lives in you. God the Son lives in you. And God the Father abides in you. This is beautiful. Now before I give my other conclusion to the sermon, you thought we were done because I already gave my conclusion, but I want to come back to that. But, but note something interesting about these three verses and before we go to that. But we, we see, again, this definite Trinitarian shape to the text, to our oneness. But what do you notice about the order? Anybody notice something? Okay, spirits first. Yeah, that we, we recited the Nicene Creed earlier. What's the sequence? Father, Son, Spirit. We recite the Apostles' Creed, Father, Son, Spirit. Here it's Spirit, Son, Father. Um, and so the order is reversed. Paul's moving in the opposite direction that we typically would move. Now why is that? He, why does he start with these kind of on-the-ground realities and then move into the heights of Father. I, I believe that he's moving from effect to cause. And so he starts with the body. That's what he's talking about in Ephesians 4. He's wanting us to know how we relate to one another in the body of Christ and those, those realities of what it's like to live together in peace and pursue harmony with one another and to walk together in love with one another. And so he starts there, the body, which is the work of the Holy Spirit. Well, where did that come from? How did the church become the church? Well, it's the work of Christ. And, and why did the Lord Jesus do that? Well, it all flows from one God who is over all and through all and in all. I think that's the, the logic that he's walking through and sequencing it this way. So, all right, so if I could restate my conclusion from my introduction, and then we're going to sing in just a moment. But the, the kind of unity, we'll talk more about this next week and the week after, about our pursuit, our very active pursuit of unity together, living at peace with one another. But that, that unity that we're to actively pursue, it's not the product of our effort. It's not our accomplishment that we're, that's kind of dangling out there that we've got to lay hold of and create for ourselves. It is a supernatural and divine and gracious gift from the triune God. The reality is there is, present tense, absolutely, indissolubly, one body, one spirit. We have one shared hope. There's one Lord who is head of the church. There, we, have, we share one faith, one baptism, all from one Father who is over all and through all and in all. We are not the cause of this. We didn't contribute to the creation of this. But we are caught up into this glorious reality. And that's, that's the heights that Paul wants us to see. He wants us to, to, to kind of get out from the muck and mire of our life together. And he wants us to get out on this kind of platform where we can see the vista of what God has done for us in Jesus apart from us. This is His gift to us. This is His work in us and among us. 
This is who we are. This is our shared identity, brothers and sisters. No matter how it feels, no matter what it looks like at times, no matter you know, how intense the squabbling gets, this is reality. Now, we're going to see next couple weeks, we get to live out of that identity. We get, to, we get to live out of that unity that we already possess. We get to walk, this is the language that he uses, we get to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. The calling to which we have been called, sovereignly called by God. We get to walk in a manner worthy of that. When he says in a manner worthy of our calling, um, what he, the, the idea of that word, it's, it's balance. In balance. It's, it's in sync. I, I was trying to think how to illustrate this. We have, I have an, uh, an embarrassing number of Apple devices, um, several of which are on this podium or on my body right now. Um, and, and the reason I, I, you can, I realize some of you won't like this illustration, but I, I, I use all these Apple devices because everything connects. Everything syncs together. And you may think that just makes me a terrible person and the big brother has got me right where he wants me. But, and he probably does. But I can, I can, if I have music on my computer that, you know, my 90s Christian playlist, my Petra or whatever it is that, you know, Sandy Patty and all that stuff. And I've, I bought that stuff years ago and I burned those CDs. That was the old language. You teenagers just ask your parents. We burned that stuff on our, C, on our computer and I got that stuff saved and it's on the cloud now and all of that. But I, I can access that from any device. It's all, everything's connected. Everything's in sync with one another. It's all, it's all in balance. It's not like I have to buy it again on my iPad or my, my uh, watch or my phone or anything like that. That's not the case. It's in sync. And so my phone is simply displaying, it's simply playing what's already mine, what I already own, what I already possess. If you, could, you just take that silly illustration, that's what Paul's saying here. Our functional walk, the way we walk together in love and pursue peace with one another and the nitty-gritty stuff of life and work through differences with one another and, 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 and work through the mess and the, and the muckiness of coming from all these different backgrounds and how do we live in harmony with one another and, 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 and how do we do this functionally within a church. Our functional walk, the way we live together, is simply is to align with what's already true about us. We are one. We're not having to create it. We're just simply trying to, 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 to receive, to lay hold of the gift that's been given to us by God. To sync up with what's real. Now, I realize in our, in our very divided, very divisive world, when the church is organizationally marred by all kinds of conflict and schism and squabbling and and we're struggling to love one another as Christ loved us, forgiving those who've wronged us, living at peace with those who are different from us. This is a very challenging pursuit, isn't it? And I'm not minimizing that by starting here. But where we look together, brothers and sisters, once again, it's not in here. It's not within ourselves. It's not drawing upon our own resources. We look outside of ourselves to what the Lord has provided, and he says we're one. We are one. We are one by the work of the triune God. By God's grace, we, we are simply laying hold of that gift that has been freely given to us. Let's pray. Lord, you know 
you know better than we know the challenges that are there in our hearts to actually live at peace with one another. And that's why I think you piled these wonderful truths up for us. Because it's so hard to love when we've been hurt, when we've been betrayed, when we've been deeply disappointed, when we've been slandered, when we've been lied to, when we've been wounded, when we've been attacked, we've been, when we've been abused. But you tell us to love not out of some finite, meager resources from our own hearts and our own spirits, but you tell us to love out of the boundless resources of who you are and what you have done and what you are doing and what you have made us to be in Christ. So we pray, Lord, help. Help us. We beg you to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace in our homes, in our marriages, with our children, in our Christian friendships, in this local congregation, among our church leadership, in our small groups, in our youth ministry, on our staff, we, with, with brothers and sisters in Christ in, in our community and around the world, Lord. We pray that that would happen, Lord, that, that eternal good then would be done for our souls that a witness would be given to the world like no other, and that ultimately, Lord, you would be glorified. We don't have this, but you, we trust that you are able. That him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in, the, in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.